All right, so I think we can go ahead and get started then. So I will start off with the blessing like we usually do. Uh, again, I'll say it in the Hebrew and then I'll say it in the English. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu, Melech HaOlam, Asher Kidshanu, B'mitzvotav, V'tzivanu, La'asok B'divrei Torah. Blessed are you, Adonai, our God, sovereign of all, who hallows us with mitzvot, commanding us to engage with words of Torah. And today we have Genesis 2 that we're going to be reading through. So um, Ashley will be... Mm -hmm. There's uh, too many words in there that I'm not messing uh, up. <laughs> okay, I'll be reading through Genesis 2. <clears throat> So the heavens and the earth were completed along with their entire array. God completed on the seventh day his work that he made, and he ceased on the seventh day from all the work that he made. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, for on it he ceased from all his work that God created for the purpose of preparing. These are the genealogical records of the heavens and the earth when they were created, at the time when Adonai Elohim made land and sky. Now no shrub of the field was in the land yet, and no green plants of the field had sprouted yet. For Adonai Elohim had not caused it to rain upon the land, and there was no one to work the ground. But a mist came up from the land and watered the whole surface of the ground. <clears throat> then Adonai Elohim formed the man out of the dust from the ground, and he breathed into his nostrils a breath of life. So the man became a living being. Then Adonai Elohim planted a garden in the east, or in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. Then Adonai Elohim caused to sprout from the ground every tree that was desirable to look at and good for food. Now the tree of life was in the middle of the garden and also the tree of knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. From there it divided and became four riverheads. The name of the first is Pishon, the one that, win, the one that winds around the whole land of the Havilah where there is gold. Gold of that land is good. Delium and lapis lazuli stones are also there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It's, it winds around the whole land of Cush. The name of the third river is Tigris. It runs east of Assyria. And the fourth river is Euphrates. Then Adonai Elohim took the man and gave him rest in the Garden of Eden in order to cultivate and watch over it. Then Adonai Elohim commanded the man, saying, From all the trees of the garden you are most welcome to eat. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you must not eat. For when you eat of it, you most assuredly will die. Then Adonai Elohim said, it is, it is not good for the man to be alone. Let me make a well-matched helper for him. Adonai Elohim had formed from the ground every animal of the field and every flying creature of the sky. So he brought them to the man to see what he would call them. Whatever the man called them, each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all of the livestock and to the flying creatures of the sky and to all the animals of the field. But for the man, he did not find a well-matched helper for him. Adonai Elohim caused a deep sleep to fall on the man and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. Adonai Elohim built the rib, which he had taken from the man into a woman. Then he brought her to the man. Then the man said, this one at last is bone of my bones and flesh, of, flesh from my flesh. This one is called woman for for man was taken this one. This is why a man leaves his father and his mother and clings to his wife and they become one flesh. <laughs> now both of them were naked, the man and his wife, and they were not ashamed. 
So first, actually, before we get into that, I want to make a correction for last week. Um, because last week I mentioned that when it says that God breathed into man the breath of life, I said that the Hebrew word there is ruach, but the word there is actually the Hebrew word neshama, which um, uh, I want to thank Jim and Leanne for catching that. Um, because the neshama is a whole different concept that um, I just started looking into, uh, and it, it is it's a whole it's a whole concept of uh, somewhat a form of the soul, I guess, or this this spirit, I think. Um, but I just wanted to make that correction. Uh, I was wrong about that word last week. Um, and so in the first part of chapter two, we see that God on the seventh day rests from all his work that he made, uh, which is now complete. God sanctifies this day and he sets it apart from all the others. Um, and in doing so, he established the pattern of cessation from work that is so vital throughout scripture. And one thing that's interesting is that in the very next phrase after the the genesis 2 says he abstained it also says to make in the hebrew um which applies that implies that accomplishment is simultaneous with rest and so um so god he 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 abstained from his work on the seventh day but he also uh he's also kind of it's it's simultaneous with his accomplishment of all creation and he also in a way creates the sabbath on that seventh day um because in in the first six days he created the physical universe that's around us and on the seventh day he created the the spiritual side that comes into being every shabbat um and for that i actually want to read um, right out of the Kumash, because I, I really like the way they word it there. And again, the um, I, I've been reading out of the, this book called the Kumash. And the Kumash is, it's essentially, it's the, the first five books of the Bible, the Torah. And then it has essentially all of the major and most significant commentary from the past few thousands of years in it in every single verse it has um a lot of commentary from a lot of different sources um among those are uh things like the midrash and the mishnah which in judaism are the 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 mishnah is called the oral torah it is uh it's it's sort of whereas the the torah was passed down in its form that exists right now the oral torah is kind of the expanded edition that was passed down orally for these past few thousands of years the the midrash is i believe the midrash is essentially a sort of um interpretive work so it it the principles in it i i believe are uh how to interpret certain passages of the torah and things like that and uh, there's there's tons and tons of other major sources in this Kumash, but this this isn't 
it isn't scripture. So I don't, I don't want it to be confused with scripture. It's commentary from many of the sages and rabbis throughout history on the scripture. Um, so with that being said, I will read this real quick. <clears throat> The Sabbath is a day saturated with purpose. The Torah states that God sanctified it because on it he abstained from all his work, implying that the essence of the day is to commemorate cessation from work. But in the very next phrase, the Torah says to make, implying that accomplishment was simultaneous with rest. There is no contradiction. God rested from physical creation, but he created the spiritual universe that comes into being every Sabbath. The world of the Sabbath is far above that of the six days it succeeds, but they are not separate from one another. The bridge between the mundane and the sacred, between the weekdays and the Sabbath, is man. Adam and Eve were created last, just before the Sabbath, because only man has the intelligence and wisdom to bring the holiness of the Sabbath into the activities of the work week. Of all the creatures in the universe, only he can create holiness. Angels are holy, but they are static. They cannot improve themselves or the world. Only man can do both. The Sabbath is God's seal, and man is the one who must impress it upon God's universe. Indeed, man's activities transform the universe from an apparently aimless amalgamation of matter into the mirror of God's will. And, yeah, I, I love the way that the commentators uh, phrase their interpretation of that. It Because... The Sabbath is, uh, in scripture, it's just, it's described as being a sign, but, um, it's, it, as I said, is also a sort of, sort of a seal that we, uh, in observing Sabbath, we impress upon the physical world around us. Um, and throughout scripture, we're, as, as we're soon going to find, there's not many issues that are treated with more importance than the Sabbath. Um, yes. And I will, I'll be, uh, or sorry, did, did you say something, Leanne? I did, but I didn't mean to. I'm sorry. Oh, that. oh, okay. I just wanted, I, I forgot. Not oh, no, it's okay. I, I heard the back end of it and wanted to make <clears throat> sure I didn't miss like a whole sentence or anything. Um, uh, yeah, throughout we're gonna we're gonna find soon that the Sabbath is treated with utmost seriousness and uh, importance throughout Scripture. Um, and I, I might switch back and forth between saying Sabbath and Shabbat. Shabbat is just it's the the Hebrew word and pronunciation of Sabbath, and Sabbath is just the the English translation, I guess. Um, uh, this uh, observance of the Shabbat is commandment number four in the Ten Commandments, and it's extremely vital for us, um, <clears throat> though we typically don't think so because uh, we have a tendency to, to almost view commandments that we're not used to or not, not commonly taught as just legalism that doesn't apply to us. But we're going we're gonna to find soon enough that that... Um, is not the case. It, it is extremely important throughout the Torah. Um, in the New Testament, Yeshua, uh, just as one example, gives us an end times warning uh, for the end of days in which he tells us that 
uh, we need to we need to pray diligently that the the abomination of desolation spoken of in or by the prophet Daniel uh, or what is called the Antichrist or the anti-Messiah. Uh, we have to pray that it doesn't come during winter or on Shabbat. And that's in Matthew 24, 15 to 21. Uh, and in this passage where he's essentially saying, uh, well, you need to, you need to pray and hope that the anti-Messiah doesn't show up on a Shabbat because in that situation, you're going to be put between, uh, likely losing your life or having to commit a grave sin in order to start a long journey to escape uh, the anti-Messiah. And we, throughout the Torah, as we get to parts about the Sabbath, we're going we're gonna to talk about the specific scriptural details of it in depth more. But right now, I just want to, I'm just going to bring up the history of it. Uh, if we want to talk about like the, the biblical side of Shabbat, I guess, then um, I have no problem doing that, but I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna run through the his the very ugly history of it real quick and just, um, just kind of bring this information to light from the research. Uh, and this is, this is all documented history throughout, uh, it's documented church history too. It's in it's in historical documents from uh, the church itself. So it it didn't come from just some random minor historian who uh, didn't like the the way that things were being done. Um, and so I'll get into this real quick. So the the Shabbat is seldom observed today, and uh, as we can see from the history, that's one of the worst possible turns it could have taken and the origins is is not very pretty at all uh the origins of the abolishing of shabbat and the sort of switching shabbat to sunday instead that actually goes back to uh the fourth century during the reign of emperor constantine in the roman empire and uh actually it did it it dates back even sooner to Nimrod and the Babylonian Empire and their sun worship, because they they had a holy day for rest set aside on Sunday, and that is actually the reason why Sunday is called Sunday. And so the 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 change in the Christian Church though goes back to the fourth century with Emperor Constantine, uh, and as we're going to find out over time, Constantine and all of his other changes are going to haunt us throughout this study. The, the removal and change of Shabbat from uh, the biblically prescribed Friday at sundown to Saturday at sundown was done intentionally by Constantine and the fourth century Catholic Church, uh, both to rid themselves of the inherent Jewishness, I guess, of the Shabbat and of just all of scripture. And it was also to achieve a compromise between Christianity and the, the, the Roman Empire's official religion of sun worship. Uh, and as I mentioned, the, the Roman Empire's rest day in the fourth century for the, their sun worshiping religion was Sunday, 
again, that's why it's called Sunday. Um, and so the switch from, from Friday at sundown, to Saturday at sundown to Sunday for the, I guess the, the biblical form of Shabbat was, it was, it was done three centuries after Jesus lived. And it was, it was by the Roman Catholic church and the emperor Constantine who did a lot of terrible things to the Christian church. Um, and these facts aren't disputed by scholars and they're actually included in the church records at the time. Um, and I'm actually going to read, read the part off where this change was made in the church records. This is from the, the Council of Laodicea, Canon, Canon 29. Uh, the, the Catholic Church writes, or the Catholic Church and the Roman Empire writes, uh, Christians must not Judaize by resting on the Sabbath, but they must work on that day, rather honoring the Lord's day. And if they can, resting, resting then as Christians. But if any shall be found to be Judaizers, let them be anathema from Christ. And Judaizer or to Judaize means essentially to, to foster any resemblance at all to Judaism. And I had to look up this other word, anathema. Essentially, anathema just means, anathema basically means severed. So they're saying if anybody from here on out keeps the biblical or I guess in their eyes, the quote unquote Jewish Sabbath, then they're to be recognized as Judaizers, people that are trying to bring the that terrible Jewishness into our uh, into our I guess new church. And uh, if anybody's found to be that way, then let them be severed from Christ, essentially. So that <clears throat> that's in uh, the church records again, the Council of Laodicea, Canon 29 of the Catholic Church and Emperor Constantine's decisions of uh, that council. And so what you'll see is that no, no researched scholar or leader will ever, ever call Sunday the Sabbath, rather they'll call it the Lord's Day. Um, and the Lord's Day essentially does not exist in scripture. That is, that's a, a concept and a doctrine that was created during the fourth century uh, as we just saw it, it actually, the, the term Lord's day is actually mentioned one time in all of scripture. It's at the, I think the start of revelation and in, in revelation, it's not even referring to a, a day of weekly worship. It's, it's not, it's, it is not replacing the, the Sabbath defined, uh, by the rest of scripture. There, there isn't, there isn't a, Jewish Sabbath and a Christian Sabbath, or there isn't an old Sabbath and a new Sabbath. It's just, it's the same. It's, it's, um, defined in scripture. It's Friday at sundown to Saturday at sundown because, um, a, a day in by the biblical standards starts, uh, at the sunset of, I guess, like the, what we would consider the day before. Um, and so with all that being said, I, would just like to share my own personal journey with wrestling with uh, this whole issue of Shabbat um, and how I got to essentially where I am right now in my understanding of it. 
uh, about two to three years ago when I was still working at Farm and Home Hardware in Ashland. Uh, that was around the time I began my journey in reading through the Torah and the Old Testament as a whole. And while doing so, I saw and I was thankfully willing to ask myself questions about it. Uh, I saw the importance and the seriousness of the Sabbath. And I was working Sundays at the time, so uh, not knowing the, the history and the changes that were made, I started taking uh, myself off the schedule for Sundays. Um, and a while after that, which was sort of relatively recently, I learned the truth about the day of Shabbat and the switch that occurred in the fourth century. Um, and so I began to observe the Sabbath on Saturdays instead. And then not long after that, I learned the next piece, which is that the Sabbath by biblical, by the biblical definition, isn't just Saturday, but it's Friday at sundown to Saturday at sundown. So I started trying to observe it on in that time frame instead. Um, and just a matter of a few months ago, uh, myself and Ashley and my mom and Grayson, uh, anytime, usually anytime we would, uh, we would go to uh, the, the place we go to church at on Saturdays, uh, afterward, we would go out to lunch at a place like Five Guys or something like that, and we would buy lunch and eat it there. Uh, and we we stopped doing that just really recently um, because we we thought through it and one of the things that we're gonna we're gonna find later on is that uh, buying and selling is restricted on the Shabbat and so we kind of thought through that and we were like yeah we're we're buying food or at the very least we're contributing to somebody else working on Shabbat and so we stopped going out to lunch and we started making food here. And what we're just um, right now finding out is that uh, we it's it's probably one of the restrictions is that we're not supposed to uh, cook, which I, I don't know what's included in that. We're just recently figuring out what all of that means. And so that's the direction we're moving now. So it for for me, at least it's been just just one small step at a time in coming to coming closer and closer to the biblically defined Shabbat. And I I, I don't think that myself or uh, anyone else here is even uh, like my at myself or Ashley or my mom are even close to uh understanding or observing in not even not even in its entirety i well we're never going to uh be able to observe it in its entirety which uh is something that pains me i guess is that we're just going to keep messing it up one way or another but uh i hope that over time we'll we'll at least get sort of close um but we're, we're nowhere close to that right now. So that I, I just wanted to explain uh, where it started for me when I started to uh, understand it a little bit to where I'm at now. Um, and it, it really concerns and bothers me that we have to do 
all of this difficult work to understand and really seek out what God says. Um, and the questions that I've wrestled with since I've started to figure all this out is uh, one thing, how is it possible that uh, three fifths of the way through obtaining Cedarville's built-in Bible minor, uh, I have yet to hear a single mention of the biblical Sabbath. And the only mention of even the Lord's day is just a really tiny footnote in the student handbook uh, that is not really going to get seen by anybody. Um, how, how can it be that a self-proclaimed Bible college with, which literally offers church history as a minor uh, still distributes this clear perversion of one of the most sacred issues in all of scripture? Uh, how, how is it possible that I grew up in the church for 17, 18 years and heard next to nothing about the Shabbat. And what I did here was about the Lord's day, which is a verifiably documented, horrible change that was made. <clears throat> um, I see Leanne and Jim left a comment. We've been attempting to keep the Sabbath for over 10 years. We're still learning every week but it's a wonderfully difficult journey. Yes, exactly. We're, it's, it is learning, learning how to do it even somewhat good is gonna be a, a super long process. And uh, we're, we're nowhere close yet, but we're, we're gonna be trying for a long time now to get it all figured out. Okay, then we can start with the um, the information that I uh, gathered for chapter two. And the, the first thing that I thought was interesting or that, that, I, that I found explained in the Kumash for, it, it comes up in verse four of chapter two and the term in the original Hebrew for when it says when they were created, that actually includes all of the letters of and can be rearranged to spell Abraham's name. And so the ancient sages and the rabbis, they, they pulled from this that, uh, that this, this little hidden nugget means that the world was created uh, for the sake of Abraham, uh, meaning that Abraham eventually, as we'll see, uh, went on to achieve God's purpose for the universe by being the, the, the first person who was <clears throat> worthy of uh, the, the covenant that we're going to see and whose offspring would be, uh, would be the ones to bring or to, to receive the Torah uh, as happened on Mount Sinai when God gave the Torah to Moses. Uh, so I thought that was interesting the creating the world for the sake of Abraham who would bring the Torah to all of the world. Um, and then in verse five, we, we, we see the very first instance of God's, uh, God's personal name being used in all of scripture, because prior to that in chapter one, throughout the creation process, uh, he was just called, as we talked about last week, he was just called the, the name Elohim in the Hebrew, which is often translated just as God, not um, not the Lord or Adonai. 
and Elohim, as we talked about, is the the plural form of the generic name for um, God or gods, uh, which we we mentioned is and uh, at least partly, I think, due to the the concept of the plural of majesty, where in Hebrew, if you want to denote honor onto something, you you make their name plural, even though they aren't there. There's not there's not like two kings or two men. Uh, it's it's to denote honor. Um, and so the verse five of chapter two is the very first time that we see his name, which is often attributed to God's attribute of mercy. Um, and so as we I, I don't remember if I mentioned it last week, but uh, the name Elohim is thought to uh, reference to God's attribute of justice. And so throughout the creation process, he took the name Elohim uh, because the ideal state for man is to be judged according to his deeds without a special need for mercy. But in chapter two, after the creation process is done, it's thought that he started taking his personal name and his attribute of mercy because God knew that uh, the state of man would change very soon and that he would need uh, he would need a, a special attribute of mercy to be dealt with. <clears throat> um, and then we also come, come across the statement, uh, and he blew into the, his nostrils the breath of life. And so we see here that God made man out of both earthly and heavenly uh, materials, I guess. He, made, he, took, he took and made our body from the dust of the earth, and then he, he breathed our soul into us from, from sort of his own spirit or essence. Uh, and so we, we, it, this signifies that, we, that our soul or spirit is in some sort of way that I don't understand and I might never understand. We are in some fashion a part of God's essence because he breathed into us from within himself. Um, and what he, what he breathed into us is, uh, thought to be the ability to be intelligent and moral and rational. Those things that make man unique in all of creation. I was wondering if emotional <clears throat> is part of that. I don't know. I, I, I don't know. For the longest time I thought uh that humans were the only ones that could have that could emote. emotions but <clears throat> i don't know part of part of me now thinks that there is some some way in animals that they can feel something maybe just that resembles emotion and i don't know i don't know but uh i don't know I think if I knew, then uh, there would be no mystery to discuss. Mm -hmm. but, but yeah, what do you think about it? I took a philosophy, mm. or a, I think a philosophy class at Cedarville one time, and my professor, or, no, Malone. Malone. That's oh. the word. That's the <laughs> one I went to. <clears throat> and uh, <clears throat> they were talking about dogs can't have emotions, and basically 
if they don't have language, can they even feel pain? Can you feel pain without without language or emotion or something like that? Oh, like uh, bonkers, Bill. Yeah. So I don't know. I think I do see <clears throat> some sort of mourning when dogs. Oh, yeah. You know. Yeah, in in some sort of way. And yeah. That's that's what I've been sort of coming to think. As well. Uh, Susan. Susan sent a chat that said, what does spirit mean? And is spirit emotions? Uh, I don't really know. I, I think- Well, talk about the difference between soul and spirit. So um, one of, I think I only touched upon it briefly last week, but uh, I think the verse was Job 12.10 that I, got it from but it essentially said that uh that all created creatures have a uh oh what was it? have a nefesh which is typically translated into english as soul and all created humans have both a nefesh and a i think the word might have was Ruach, but it might have also been Neshama. And that one is typically translated as spirit. And so, I don't know, I, maybe maybe spirit includes emotions or maybe, maybe soul is what includes emotions. So I, I, don't, I don't really know, but uh, what, I, what I have read in the Kumash and what I think uh, makes sense from what I've seen in the rest of scripture is that for sure what's included in spirit is uh, the ability to be intelligent, moral, and rational. Uh, and emotions might be included in that, but I... Maybe I they're included in Nefesh. Yeah, may, yeah, they might be included in Nefesh, which all, all created animals, including humans, have. What that would be ask, uh, Jim and Land. Do you guys do you guys know anything about that by chance? I think your dad wanted to say something oh. before he answered his question. Did you want to say anything, Dad? No, I was just gonna just thinking about like when our dogs died. I mean, they clearly felt sadness, mm -hmm. and I mean they they feel extreme happiness or craziness at times but i think they feel different things yeah i don't know i and i think and i know they clearly feel pain so yeah pain, pain i don't know is um yeah jim and Liam, do you guys know anything by chance about the difference between nefesh and neshama as it relates to emotions or in general or yeah or even just in general <clears throat> we can't hear anything if you're talking uh, she's muted oh she's oh, oh. 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 um how about now how about now? Oh, yeah, we can hear now. Okay. I didn't know. If, okay. 
We're trying to figure it out. So it seems like from what we've learned that it's kind of confusing that, that whether nephish is, I, in the English, it's more difficult, I think, for us to determine the difference between spirit and soul. But in the Hebrew, nephish is definitely something that plants, animals, and humans all have. Neshama. Oh, plants have nephesh? Yeah. Yeah, neshama is what, and you said it right, Jacob, you didn't say it wrong. Neshama is the God-breathed thing that came into Adam and is into humans. Now, whether that's spirit or soul, that's real confusing because they seem like they use the words interchangeably. And no, but there is definitely a neshama for humans that, that animals don't have. Okay. I didn't know plants were included in that either. Yeah, I didn't either until fairly recently. Well, that would... Ask me tomorrow and it'll probably be different. <laughs> yeah, that's... Yeah, that seems like how it is with most of this process of learning. Well, that's our two cents for it. Okay. Awesome. Yeah, thank you. That gives us some more information. Let's um, give you more. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the basic answer, uh, we don't know, but it would be something, something to, or I, I, at least I, I don't know. I don't understand it. That's what I meant to say. Um, but uh, what to look into, what I'll start to look into is the difference the the characteristics difference between nefesh and neshama what makes the two different um and so after that in genesis 2 we see that god formed adam outside of the garden of eden uh or, or this the the kumash says that uh, and yeah i think it's in the Torah too that God makes Adam outside of the Garden of Eden and puts him in the Garden of Eden later on, um, and so he he forms Adam outside the garden, in uh, as Kumash says in the world of thorns and thistles, so that Adam can see the alternative before being put into the garden and given his first commandment. Um, and one thing that's important to understand in this is that the Garden of Eden and the Land of Eden are not the same thing. Uh, additionally, it's also important that we pay attention to any time in the Bible that, uh, that a, a certain verse says anything about something being east, because the direction east has a lot of spiritual significance. East typically has to do with uh, goodness or righteousness or holiness and... Um, moving in the direction of east is also similar to that as well um and so what we see is that adam was made in the land of eden and then god made the garden of eden on the east side of eden and then took adam from out of the land of eden and put him into the garden of eden um and this this is actually really interesting too because this this general structure of eden that we see we're going to see come up again and again as 
uh, sort of a, a physical picture of the spiritual, I, I believe what I, th I believe the picture that it's creating is sort of a picture of heaven. Um, we're going to, this, the, the same thing we see with uh, the land of Eden, we'll see it later on, uh, on Mount Sinai. We're going to see it with the wilderness tabernacle that Israel uh, builds, and we're also going to see it later on with the temple. Um, these are all examples of uh, structures and uh, concepts that are, are sort of a, a physical picture of the spiritual heaven, I think. And uh, part of that is due to and due to the fact that in each of these, there's there's certain layers of closeness to God, I think. So I, I, it seems that way with Eden, where there's the land of Eden, which is sort of further from God in a way, and then the Garden of Eden, which is of utmost holiness, and it's closer to God. Uh, with Sinai, it's the same thing. You had the, the majority of the congregation of Israel had to be around the base of the mountain and then only only a certain small portion of people could go a small way up the mountain and then even from there only Moses and I don't remember maybe Joshua as his scribe or maybe it was two maybe it was just Moses I don't remember I, I think I remember there being something about two but yeah but um yeah, from, from that small group, then only Moses or Moses and who he took with him were allowed to go to the very top of the mountain to be extremely close to God. Uh, the same thing happens with the wilderness tabernacle and the temple. There's sort of an outer courtyard for the majority of the people. And then uh, there's certain areas for the priests inside the tabernacle and temple. And then there's also the Holy of Holies, which is the innermost part of both of them, which only the high priest was allowed to go into and only one day a year. And that is thought to be where God resided. Joshua. Joshua. Okay. So Moses, Moses and Joshua were the only two people that could go to the top of Mount Sinai. But he didn't go all the way up. Hang on. Oh, he didn't go all the way up. Mm -hmm. oh. Joshua did not go all the way. Oh, okay. Um, yes. Yeah, so if you, if you're listening to the Torah class podcast, you're going to hear Tom Bradford refer to this general concept as the reality of duality. That's sort of his term that he's coined for this concept of, uh, two, two things, uh, one spiritual and one earthly and the earthly sort of is a shadow of the spiritual one or, or it, it leads it is kind of a physical picture of the spiritual one and we're gonna we're gonna see this with a, a lot of different things throughout scripture but that that's just the the first instance is the structure of the land of eden <clears throat> um and so after that we have man in the garden and adam was placed in the garden it says to work it and guard it and the Torah mentions previously, though, that the garden grew of its own accord. So the Midrash, which, uh, the, which the Kumash includes in its commentary, interprets this state, statement allegorically. 
Um, working the garden, it says, took the form of Adam studying Torah and the performance of positive commandments, which are commandments where God says, do something. And he was to guard the garden by refraining from doing or by refraining from forbidden activities, which is, which are negative commandments uh, or commandments where God says, don't do something. Uh, and this, this kind of brings in, into light a whole new rabbit hole. And I don't know the answer to it. So I'm just going to drop it and we're just going to, we can discuss it or we can just leave it here and do our own research outside of this. But how, if, if what the Midrash is saying is right, how did the Torah exist prior to its giving on Mount Sinai? Uh, how it, it says that Adam was studying the Torah, which uh, the Torah, in, at least in its current form, didn't exist until God gave it to Moses on Mount Sinai after uh, the Israelites leave Egypt some 2,500 years later. Roughly, I think. Yeah, that, you, we were talking then. I mean, but it was there and being yeah. practiced prior to that because, yeah. <clears throat> you know, I mean, like yeah. Ashley, Cain and Abel knew what sacrificial animals were allowed to be used. And then uh, with the flood, no one knew which ones were clean and which ones were unclean and how many to put on there because he needed seven pairs of clean and two pairs of unclean or something like that. But he, it wasn't specified yet in the Torah, like which ones were clean, which ones were considered unclean. And even you mentioned Abraham and Zipporah. Or Moses and Zipporah? Yeah, yeah. Or what about yeah, this yeah. with circumcision? Um, yeah, circumcision. Uh oh. oh. Well, that, that one was given to Abraham before. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That was like a, an, I think you said to represent the covenant, you had to have a, every man had to be circumcised. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. I was thinking of the Yeah, it, it, it uh, even if it didn't exist, the Torah didn't exist for Adam in this specific case. Uh, like Ashley said, it had to have existed at least for Noah, which was still a long time before, uh, before Moses received it on Sinai mm -hmm. because God, God didn't explain to him what clean and unclean was. He just said, get, he just said, make these distinctions between clean and unclean. So Moses or Noah had some knowledge, uh, as, Ashley also said Cain and Abel had some knowledge of the sacrificial system. Uh, and so Le Jim and Leanne actually uh, mentioned this the other day when we were, when we were talking with them about it, but uh, it's thought that prior to the current form that we have the Torah in, which was given to Moses on Mount Sinai, the Torah was written on the hearts of these people who I guess had the Torah before Sinai. Um, and just, just as another note, um, <clears throat> anytime uh, the, the scriptures say heart, it actually is referring to the mind or the brain because in the biblical times, uh, the heart was thought to be what we now know as the brain. The heart was thought to be where thought and reason and uh, intelligence occurred and it wasn't really until it wasn't i don't think it was until the greeks and 
Hellenization and the Greek philosophy that the heart started to represent uh, emotions and feelings and uh, the things we now associate with the heart. So if you, that, that's just a side note. If you read, if you read in scripture, uh, something, something about the heart, uh, you can kind of, I think most of the time you can just substitute the word mind or brain in there. So uh, I think when, I think when we see in scripture, something is, or when God writes his Torah on somebody's heart, it is referring to he, he writes it in their brain which i don't know how that happened um but that that's that's the idea that um jim and leanne shared with us recently um and if, if you guys wanted to elaborate on that all or uh make any additions to that you can too What? Sorry, what did you say? Hey. Oh. Um, it was okay, I can hear you. And in the Kumash on page 82. Page 82 of the Kumash? 382. 382? Oh, 382. Okay. okay. One of the th interesting things that we found was that this it talks a little bit about the Torah before they were given, before Moses was given the Torah to Mount Sinai. If you look on page uh, 382 at the bottom, it says a decree and an ordinance. You're going in and out, Jim. Sorry, it the volume is going in and out for some reason. Like you get loud and then you get really quiet for some reason. Is your 382 covering Exodus 16? Yeah, it's 382 is uh, it's actually uh, 15, verse 25. Okay. At the bottom of the page, it talks about a decree and an ordinance. Yeah. Do you, if, if Jacob went, yeah, go ahead and read, somebody read that. Yeah. Okay. Um, okay, so this is the commentary on Exodus 15.25, like Jim said. Uh, seeing how the lack of Torah study had caused a disaster, God gave the people commandments that they could occupy themselves with until they received the Ten Commandments. These laws included the law of the red cow, which is called a decree because it is not understandable to human intelligence, and the laws of the Sabbath and the civil law, which are called ordinances because they are logical. Ramban infers that these commandments were not meant to be binding as yet, otherwise the Torah would have spelled them out. Rather, they were in the nature of the commandments that were studied by Abraham before the Torah was given. The nation was to study them so that they could have a taste of the Torah they were about to receive and be sure that they were willing to accept it. Okay, that... that starts to shed some more light on it then so it it wasn't it wasn't the whole torah that was written on their minds prior to sinai it was it was certain aspects of it then like uh sabbath and um apparently like clean and unclean then right that that's kind of what we got that they it was already on their hearts 
They had not, it was given as a decree or an ordinance. It wasn't written on the tablets and given to them until after Sinai. So it kind of shed some light that maybe already, it was already in their hearts before they ever received them, which would be, which would kind of follow up with what you said about Adam, that it was already on his heart. Yeah. Yeah. And th this is the story of the manna. And um, they had to, the story of manna is coupled with the Sabbath. And um, because they had to stop collecting manna on yeah. Friday night. And, you know, the, and they hadn't been to Mount Sinai yet, but they still didn't get any food if they disobeyed the laws of the Sabbath. Yeah, that makes sense. And, I, I, I don't, I don't really know. I, I didn't listen to a ton of things about it or anything, but I, I listened to one podcast episode where a rabbi was saying specifically about Adam that he didn't have the Torah in, I think he said he didn't have it in any form before the fall. So, um, the Kumash is saying, yes, he did have the Torah before the fall when he was originally in the garden. This other rabbi that I listened to, his he and his sources were saying that Adam didn't have it at all before the fall. And his reasoning was that because uh, Adam didn't need it before the fall, which I I don't I don't know if I. I, I think I would be more inclined to go with the line of logic that he did. Adam and Eve did have the Torah prior to the fall, uh, but I don't know. I I'm not sure. Yeah, Jim and Jim and Leanne just commented three rabbis, four opinions. Yeah. So yeah, that, there's there's lots of different interpretations on every every single topic or issue, and uh, it'll be a long journey just even figuring out for one issue what this sort of right opinions at least they wrestle um, with it yes yeah um and then after that in Gen oh um and then susan said so the torah could also mean god's will that was spoken to them yeah i i think that could also be true as well maybe maybe it wasn't given in like the tablet or book form or oral form that was given to moses on sinai but maybe, maybe God spoke directly with them, even just little pieces of it, maybe. I don't know. Yeah, three rabbis, four opinions. Um, and so after, after the part about Adam and the, the, the sort of introduction to Adam in the garden, um, it says that on the day you eat of it, referring to the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you shall surely die. Um, and one little note about this that I thought was interesting that I didn't see until I read it in the Kumash is that Adam ended up living to the age of 930. So it's clear that this passage doesn't mean that uh, the moment he eats of the tree, he would die immediately upon eating the fruit, rather that he would become subject to death on that day, or he would become uh, mortal, I guess. Uh, and so there's also another issue that's somewhat discussed here that I've heard different uh, rabbis and leaders talk about is the fact that God doesn't say if you eat of the tree, he 
might essentially be saying when you eat of the tree. Uh, and so all I have in my notes about that here is, is there something here? Or are we just reading into it too much? Because I don't know. Uh, as, as we talked about last week, the world before the flood looked vastly different to the world that we live in now. So when we try and picture in our head the pre-flood world with the images of the world that exists now, it is pretty inadequate because we just, we don't understand uh, what it looked like then. And so, um, yeah, there, there's, there's, an, there's a potential thing to look into there with the whole when you eat of it maybe rather he's than because he knows they're gonna do it well maybe that yeah. could be yeah, like god is like oh when you you're going to do it so when you do do it yeah you will surely die because mm. he already knows they're going to yeah yes hey um mm. explain if you remember the number what remember we discussed the number of generations between no adam and adam was a alive clear up until what generation prior to Noah? Oh, I, I actually looked this up the other day. I, I don't remember generationally, but I know Adam died actually not relatively not long before Noah. I I think maybe I I don't know. I, oh oh you're talking about the Torah, the 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 like active generation thing. I was actually talking about it, if it, since when you were talking about how Noah or Adam was alive, nine hundred and some years gives credence to the authenticity of the the validity of the Torah being on their minds. Yeah, and then he and also shared. what happened in the beginning and everything. I think we can. Yeah. You know, you wonder like, did stuff get embellished over time because it was oh, generations yeah. in between, but mm -hmm. he was actually alive throughout <clears throat> a large portion of those generations. Yeah, I that I don't remember where specifically it's at in the Kumash, but there's a part in the Kumash that explains the sort of mouth to mouth generations that exit or that went from adam to the torah essentially or adam to moses and that essentially uh oh that essentially it, it refers to how many generations went by from adam to the torah that like in a, in a very minimalist way so how so adam lived 930 years so the generations that that specific thing is talking about is the last or the latest of Adam's descendants to actually see him firsthand. And so from Adam to his latest descendant was 930 years. So that's one, uh, I guess it didn't have a name, but I'll just call it like minimalist generation, one, one word of mouth generation, I guess. Uh, and from that person to the next word of mouth generation was another really long time and so what the kumash uh explained is that uh from adam to the torah even though there's many 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 generations that uh went down through that time there were actually 
I don't remember the exact number. It was something really small. Like, yeah, like crazy small. Like maybe, maybe even less than 10 or around 10 in the low teens or something like that of generations that uh, saw the, the oldest of sort of the past word of mouth generation. Uh, and there were maybe around 10, less than 10, more than 10 uh that went by either, either 10 less than yeah. 10 or more than 10. yeah one of one, one of, of the three that but that went by from adam all the way to moses some 20 how many hundreds of years was each generation because people were still living right yeah that's uh, that's one of the things that i think changed after the flood too is i i never realized this until recently but the flood is sort of where the lifespan starts to drop off a whole lot more and so the first uh, 1,500 years, maybe, from Adam to the flood, I think was essentially like two people, two word of mouth generation type things. So Adam's longest descendant, uh, he could have talked to directly. And then that longest descendant, I think, was probably alive for the flood and to see Noah. And um, I guess just as an example of that, after the flood, so Noah's son Shem, I know for sure, uh, was alive even long after the flood when Abraham was alive. So Shem, uh, we're gonna we're gonna see that soon. That Shem actually might have taken on a a different name, I guess, after the flood, uh, which has a lot of really interesting stuff behind it but yeah it there there were not a lot of those word of mouth generations that went by even though from adam to moses on sinai was like like over 2000 years or something like that it was, it's it was crazy to think about i wish i knew what page that was on mm -hmm. i'll have to find that for next week yeah um and then let me let me see if I can screen share this real quick on Zoom. Yeah. Uh, see. Okay. Can you guys on Zoom see this that I have up right now? Yes. Okay. So. Yeah. Slide that I have for today. Huh? Okay, so I I prepared some some Hebrew words today for this next section that I have. Uh, let's see. Are you guys still able to see just the slideshow thing? Or is the rest of my screen showing too? We see you in the slide. Okay, good. So I can have my notes up at the same time. So um, actually, let me show all of you first. So uh, let me take my charger so we can put it out in the middle for everyone to see. So I put together these words here and actually, let me pull my notes up on my phone. 
Okay, so on this list, I have, first I just have Adam and Eve's names in the Hebrew. Adam is Adam and Eve is, Eve in the Hebrew is uh, Chava. And Adam, Adam is actually, when we see it in the Hebrew, it's the term, it's the term that's just generally for man or mankind. Um, and one thing, I think I have it late, a little bit later in my notes, is that most of the creation process, when it refers to Adam, in the original Hebrew, it's actually calling him the Adam or the man, uh, which in Hebrew is uh, Ha-Adam. And so when you see in Genesis 1 and, uh, and around that time when you see the man, the actual word there is Ha-Adam or the Adam. Um, and then there's a lot of significance behind that that I started to hear in a video, but I didn't, I didn't get it, get all the significance yet, but that would, if you're interested, that's something I would look up is the significance of the atom. Um, <clears throat> and so uh, we start to get into the part where God forms a companion for Adam or uh, Hava, seeing that no other creature will be a suitable companion. Adam asked God for a suitable helper. And because she was taken from Ish, which is here in the original Hebrew, uh, Ish is man. Because she was taken from Ish, she's called Isha in Hebrew or woman. And Isha is here. Um, and so um, one thing that's interesting about the term Ish uh, or man is that the term Ish is thought to come from the Hebrew word Ish, which is actually fire. Uh, and that's, that is thought to be because mankind uh, sort of exemplified, or it, it, is that the word, exemplifies? I think that's a word, exemplifies uh, many of the traits that can be described by fire. And I, I'll read that out of the, the Kumash here in a second. Let me get to that. <clears throat> so in reference to Adam exemplifying the the or man exemplifying the traits uh, represented by fire because of the name Ish coming from Ish or fire uh, the Kumash says this uh, that name Ish comes from Ish or fire because man is unique among all living things and the characteristics symbol, symbolized by fire, verve and, and enthusiasm, lust and initiative. These characteristics enable man to achieve dominance, attain wisdom and develop culture. But the same fire can cause the mass destruction that has marred humanity almost since the beginning of time. Controlled and directed, that fire can create spiritual kingdoms that even surpass the angels. Um, and so that, that is thought to be why, why the term ish was for man. Um, and something else that's interesting is you can see here in the term man, we have the letters Aleph, Yod, and Shin. And in the term woman, we have Aleph, Shin, He. 
Um, and so the both man and woman in their name have these two letters from Aish or fire in common. Uh, but man has the letter Yod and woman has the letter Hey. And if you, if you take those out, those are actually the letters in the shorthand version of God's divine name, uh, Yah, which I, I looked it up. I think it's used, I don't remember how many times in scripture, but I know it's used in at least one of the Psalms, just, just the shorthand version, Yah. And so uh, the idea is that uh, God has to be present in a man and woman's uh, marriage relationship with each other. And if God is not present in that relationship, then these two letters are removed. And what you're left with is a consuming fire that uh, harms the people in the relationship and everybody around it. Um, and so I, I wanted the, the visual for that because I, I thought that was just really, really interesting and cool um, about <clears throat> man, woman, uh, yah, and um, fire. So, we'll back out of this now. Um, actually, I'll just I'll just take this up and use the notes on my phone. So, um, <clears throat> and then, like I mentioned before, Adam throughout. Um, the creation story is called the Adam or the man. Uh, and like I said, I, I don't, I don't remember or know yet the, the complete significance behind him being called the Adam or the man. Um, but that would be something interesting to look into. And the last thing that I have in my info for the night is that the literal original Hebrew wording of verse 18, when it's referring to uh, the creation of Eve is that Eve would be a helper against him. That's what it says uh, in the literal Hebrew. Um, and so I'm, I'm going to read again out of the Kumash for their description of that. Uh, and so referring to verse 18, the, the phrase, a helper corresponding to him, uh, literally this, this phrase means a helper against him. If the man is worthy, the woman will be a helper. If he is unworthy, she will be against him. That's one interpretation of it. Another is that uh, <clears throat> many have noted that the ideal marriage is not necessarily one of total agreement in all matters. Uh, often it is the wife's responsibility to oppose her husband and prevent him from acting rashly or to help him achieve a common course by questioning, criticizing, and discussing. Thus, the verse means literally that there are times a wife can best be a helper by being against him in a way. Um, and I, I just, I really like the way that the, the Kumash explained that whole portion about um, the Hebrew literally saying a helper against him. Um, and that is all of the information that I have for tonight on chapter two.